about to listen to a sermon from Newtown Erskineville Anglican Church. As a church, we want to see whole communities captivated by Jesus Christ and living out His freedom. Our Bible reading today is from Genesis 4, 17 to 26, which is on the handouts or in the pew Bibles. Cain made love to his wife, and she became pregnant and gave birth to Enoch. Cain was then building a city, and he named it after his son Enoch. To Enoch was born Irad, and Irad was the father of Mahujael. And Mahujael was the father of Methushael, and Methushael was the father of Lamech. Lamech married two women, one named Ada and the other named Zilah. Ada gave birth to Jabal. He was the father of those who lived in tents and raised livestock. His brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of those who placed stringed instruments and pipes. Zilah also had a son, Tubal Cain, who forged all kinds of tools out of bronze and iron. Tubal Cain's sister was Nama. Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zilah, listen to me. Wives of Lamech, hear my words. I have killed a man for wounding me. A young man for injuring me. If Cain is avenged seven times, then Lamech seventy-seven times. Adam made love to his wife again. She gave birth to a son named, and named him Seth, <coughs> saying, God has granted me another child in place of Abel, since Cain killed him. Seth also had a son, and he named him Enosh. At that time, people began to call on the name of the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. I should have said before, but if you're uh, joining us this evening, you're coming in right at the end, the eighth and last sermon on a a series through Genesis chapters one to four. Uh, So that's where we're up to and why why you're coming in with kind of a a weird passage. Uh, So let me pray again. Uh, Lord, give us grace to learn from this troubling little moment at the end of this chapter and give us grace, please, to take the lessons we've learned from Genesis with us in faith this evening and in the weeks ahead, for Christ's sake. Amen. I don't know if you've ever noticed uh, this, but an amazing number of movies, particularly American movies, but not only American movies, are about revenge. Think of almost every recent movie with Jason Statham or Denzel Washington or Liam Neeson. Think of a series like John Wick, which I hope you haven't seen, but some of you might have. Think of Dwayne Johnson classics like Walking Tall. Has anybody else seen that? There seems to be actually a widespread appetite for films that that play out horrific vengeance-taking. It's an old theme, of course. A lot of classic westerns revolve around revenge. But I reckon it's had an extraordinary flowering recently. If you look out for it, you'll start seeing it everywhere. 
I was shocked to see that it's even in the recent Rings of Power series. The character of Galadriel, the young Galadriel, uh, is, is driven by revenge. Tolkien uh, would, have, would turn in his grave. Right? Revenge is nowhere to be seen in the Lord of the Rings, which is interesting, actually. The passage before us this evening which, as I said, is the final installment in our series on the opening four chapters of Genesis. This passage centers on a man filled with vengefulness. Last week we saw how Cain's anger and envy opened a path of violence. That's the beginning of chapter 4. If you weren't here, you can have a read back. Well, Lamech, Cain's uh, Cain's descendant, sorry, Lamech lives by violence and by menacing the people around him. It's not a pleasant passage of scripture, this one. It requires us to think soberly about violence within families, amongst other things. But we need to read this passage because it it reveals our world to us. It draws attention to things that it's really easy to minimize or pretend away or just look the other way with. As with Cain's story, what we see here is not how people always are all the time. Thank goodness. What we see is how some people are some of the time, but in a way that affects everyone else. We are tracking the patterns of sin that open up once sin has come into the world. And as with Cain's story, if our eyes can be open to these things properly, it will in the end lead us to see the beauty and majesty of Jesus Christ more clearly. Okay, let's begin then with the children of Cain. Um, I hope you've got the passage open before you. I'll put some verses up on the screen, but also invite you to read along. What stands out at first as the story of Cain goes on is actually how successful he is. Just before this passage, in chapter 4, which we looked at last week, Cain was condemned to be a restless wanderer. You'll be a restless wanderer, God says. But now, straight away, he apparently manages to find a home. It says, a city is founded and named after his son Enoch. So he's, he's, you know, he's, he's going to be a restless wanderer, and then suddenly he's founding a city. What's going on? Well, I think it's not actually a contradiction. The story is subtler than that. I, I think, actually, this may be a comment on the, on the ambiguity of human social life in cities. There is a way in which life in cities is precisely a a form of alienation from the earth. Because when you live in a city, you live at a remove from the natural realities of the world. Trivially, but importantly, most of us get our food from grocers rather than the ground. Does anybody here grow much of their own food? Does anybody here grow any of their own food? I remember I tried to grow vegetables uh, a number of years ago, and I calculated that each tomato probably cost me about $120. 
It was not, it was not a kind of, you know, master class in uh, Gardening Australia kind of stuff. But anyway, you know, we, we, we're removed from, from that at one level. We have a degree of distance from the challenges of growing things and, and, and the realities of weather. I think it's important for those of us who live in, who live in and, and quite like living in cities, I think we need to just be honest about this. I'm not saying that cities are just bad or anything. There are lots of good things about cities, and in the end, in the Bible, the new heavens and the new earth, the hope that we look for is pictured as a, a holy city. But cities are also not just good. They can represent, I think Cain's story implies, they can represent a way of living with an alienation from the earth. If you want to think more about that, can I recommend uh, this classic essay by Jacques Ellul, The Meaning of the City. You probably won't be able to get it with this classic hot pink cover, but um, it's a really interesting book. But Cain does succeed in the city. He has descendants. They're named Enoch, Irad, Mahujael, Methushael, and Lamech. Well done, by the way, Sam. Good reading. We then hear a lot more about Cain's great-great-great-grandson, Lamech. We hear first that he marries two women. Now, polygamy, or strictly in this case, bigamy, was not uncommon in the ancient world. But when it first appears here in Genesis, it's meant to stand out and feel uncomfortable. And the fact that the first bigamist, the man who marries two women, is Lamech, who is a really bad guy, that shows you that this is a bad development. The names of Lamech's wives are also interesting. Adar means pretty or ornament. And Zillah, although this is less certain, it's tricky to work out with the Hebrew, but it, it may well mean tinkle or sweet sound, almost like a pretty face and a pretty voice. I think we are seeing here a growing corruption of the relationship we saw in Genesis chapter 2 where the man and his wife are rejoicing in one another as partners and equals. There is a sense here of moving further and further away from how God intended things to be. Each of Lamech's wives has two named children, Jabal and Jubal, Tubal-Cain and Naamah. And with the sons, we're told, comes the beginning of nomadic farming, playing musical instruments and metalworking. There is a sense, as you read this, of all these things about, you know, these, these sons beginning things. There's a sense of human life developing and diversifying and taking shape, developing real interest and richness, exploring the possibilities of the earth. This is the birth of civilization. But all of it takes place under a shadow. Because it, it is the descendants of Cain, the murderer, who take these steps. It is Lamech's children. This is Lamech and his two wives by William Blake. Lamech, you know, and, 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 and in the following verses, we hear how 
With Lamech, who is the father of all these pioneers of human culture, we learn about how with Lamech, Cain's legacy kind of metastasizes horribly. Have a look from verse 23. Lamech said to his wives, Adar and Zillah, listen to me. Wives of Lamech, hear my words. I've killed a man for wounding me, a young man for injuring me. If Cain is avenged seven times, then Lamech 77 times. Lamech announces that he will punish any offence or injury with extraordinarily disproportionate violence. He has killed a man for injuring him. Lamech makes Cain's mark, which we heard about last week, he makes it look like a welcome sign. Now I want us to notice two things about this passage. The first is what it implies about culture and civilization. It is pretty sobering that the beginnings of civilization and culture and art in the Bible come with this family. It is Lamech's children who develop these cultural forms and patterns. Quite disturbingly, this speech Lamech makes is actually made in very elegant Hebrew poetry. Um, uh, it's a fine example of Hebrew parallelism, which is a kind of key form of Hebrew poetry. There's a lot of rhyme in the Hebrew, and as the scholars say, there's three quite careful couplets here, or, or bicolor, um, if you're into kind of the, 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 the apparatus of Hebrew poetry, right? This is a nice poem. It's, it, it has a claim to be the first ever poem in the Bible. Actually, maybe the end of chapter 2, where Adam speaks to his wife, is a kind of poem, but this is one of the first at least, and it's a murderous threat of retaliation. Now, the point is not that things like art, culture, and music are, are just bad. Actually, I think the text gives a sense that these developments that Lamech's sons achieve, they're good gifts. They are things that are good emerging from within the wreckage. But it does mean we have to not idolise them. We must not imagine that there is some intrinsic redemptive power in art, music, poetry, culture, or even civilization that means these things aren't touched by sin and evil, aren't corrupted. We mustn't imagine that these things can save us. Genesis warns us away from that by connecting the birth of civilization and, and artistic creativity with the figure of Lamech and the menacing shadow of violence. The second thing I want to talk about here is even more troubling. Did you notice how Lamech's speech and his threats are explicitly directed to his wives? Lamech said to his wives, it says, and then he emphasizes it, Adar and Zillah, listen to me, wives of Lamech, hear my words. Why is it to his wives that he makes these murderous threats of fearsome retribution for the slightest injury? I think, sadly, we know the answer. He is making them frightened of him so that he can control them. 
the, this, this vicious man with his two trophy wives now holds them in check by menacing them. In chapter 3, if you're with us, you'll remember that we heard God say that as a result of sin, he says to Eve, your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. And we saw that that was a tragedy and a judgment. Now we see where this tragedy leads. How very far from the garden this is. It's really worth letting it sink in that right here at the beginning of the Bible, right at the beginning, we have an example of what is now known as domestic or family violence or intimate partner violence. The Bible teaches us here that male intimidation has been a feature of human relationships almost from the beginning of human society. Not all domestic violence is perpetrated by men, but an awful majority of it is. And the reality of this has often been underestimated. People look the other way because they can't imagine this person doing that. Sometimes Christians have been especially bad at this, at believing that people could be violent or abusive or controlling. Sometimes we have been criminally naive about how church teachings can be weaponized by abusers to enable control. But Lamech shows us that this is an evil that we ought to, we ought to be able to anticipate and be on guard against. Man ruling over woman through threats of violence is a pattern that has been there right from the beginning. So we shouldn't be surprised by it, though we must never be okay with it. Now, thank God, not everyone is like Lamech. Most men aren't. But in the aftermath of Adam and Eve's sin and of Cain's, this kind of thing does appear. Overall, you see, what we see here is that the Bible just doesn't flatter us about ourselves or about the world we live in. It doesn't paint an optimistic picture about human society and civilization. Right, think about this story. It would have been so easy not to mention the bad bits about Lamech and just to, just to talk about all the achievements of his children. How easy would that have been and to paint a picture of things getting better because we're learning to play the, the lyre and what was it, the pipe, you know, and we're learning to make things out of metal and, it, you know, it's a story of progress but instead Genesis, is, Genesis says, oh yeah, they, 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 they were learning to do some stuff but let me tell you about this guy. There are lots of stories that tell a story of progress. In Genesis, in the time in which it was written, there were stories that tell a story about things getting better. And it's the same in our time. The Bible paints a much more mixed picture. It says that human society and civilization emerge from people who are deeply broken so that they are always already shot through with patterns of terrible evil. The hope of humanity, you see, according to the Bible, the hope for humanity does not lie in civilization and culture and progress. It lies somewhere else. 
The very last moment of Genesis chapter 4 is a glimpse of that somewhere else. Did you notice it there? Right at the end, it's in your sheets. Adam and Eve have a third son, whom they name Seth. God has granted me another child in place of Abel, says Eve, since Cain killed him. The injury is still raw. But now a new child has come along, bearing a real sense of promise. In time, Seth too has a son, Enosh. And then right at the end of chapter 4, we're told, at that time, people began to call on the name of the Lord. That's not much, but it is hopeful. To call on the name of the Lord is a good thing. It means looking to God for help and honoring him. And that's a hopeful thing, right? Does this mean that Seth's line is going to turn out to be different to Cain's, better? Well, not in any simple sense. Seth's descendants are still Adam's descendants, and they will turn out to be broken by sin and evil as well. But Seth's line does turn out to hold a hidden promise. He becomes the ancestor of a line of people who hold a hope for humanity, a line that leads quickly to Noah, whom God delivers from the flood, and then it leads on to Abraham, through whom God promises to bring blessing to the world. We're up to Genesis 12 now, and then much later into Israel's history, it leads to King David, to whom God promises that his offspring will rule a kingdom that will endure forever. And eventually, that line leads down through the exile and out the other side, through the Jewish, uh, you know, the intertestamental period when, then, when then the Jewish people suffered under the Seleucids and the Greeks. And, the, and finally, under the Romans, it leads to a man named Joseph and a woman named Mary who give birth to a boy, Jesus. And with Jesus, this hidden promise, this seed of hope, for a way out of the mess humanity has got into. With Jesus, that seed flowers. Jesus came to open for humanity a new way of life rather than death, of mercy rather than menace. I reckon the moment where you see this most clearly in the light of our passage is this wonderful moment in, in chapter 18 where Jesus, I think, deliberately contrasts what he's doing with the figure of Lamech. Have a look at it from Matthew chapter 18. Then Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? Up to seven times? Jesus answered, I tell you, not seven times, but 77 times. Do you know the call to forgive is right at the center of Jesus' teaching. He folds it into the Lord's Prayer, and he talks about it often. It's one of the real distinctives of what he was on about. And I'm sure you see now in these words the contrast with the figure of Lamech. Lamech says that if Cain is avenged seven times, then he will be avenged 77 times. It's an overwhelming excess of vengefulness for him. Jesus uses the same numbers to call his followers to an overwhelming excess of forgiveness. A different possibility was being opened, you see. A path out of the mess 
made by Adam and Cain and Lamech. A whole new humanity was being born with a whole new character, a humanity of mercy rather than menace. With Lamech, we see humanity frightened into self-protective violence, a snarling dog backed into a corner. Jesus calls for a new way of courageous self-offering and extravagant grace. And all of this was possible, this new way, this whole new humanity, all of it was possible because these were not just words for Jesus. These were not just beautiful ideas and wishful thinking. You know, as if he was just saying, wouldn't it be great if we're all really nice to each other for a while? No, this was the path that Jesus gave his life to open. He laid down his life as an act of divine forgiveness. Forgiveness is always costly because it requires someone to take the pain of a grievance into themselves. On the cross, Jesus became in himself the cost of God's mercy to humanity. On the cross, he became the divine decision not to retaliate, but to forgive. To pour out his, upon his wayward world and upon us, broken, fearful, and sometimes vicious people, to pour out his infinite love. And God raised him from the dead as the guarantee that that forgiveness had won, had triumphed, and, the, and as the promise of life beyond the fear and loathing of Lamech. The opening chapters of Genesis tell us of what happened in the beginning. They tell us of the character and beauty of the world in which we live and of the glory of its maker. But because, as we've seen, the story they tell is so quickly a story of tragedy and failure, these chapters also lead our eyes on to a new beginning that has taken place in Jesus Christ. In the midst of this world, that is old before its time, that is broken by sin, beset by evil, subjected to frustration, new life has burst out in Jesus. Listen to how the Apostle John begins his account of the life of Jesus. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. You know, the wonderful thing about this passage is the way John moves from speaking about the beginning of creation to speaking about the meaning of Jesus. You hear him saying in amazement, in him was life, and that life was the light of the world, and the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And those are all images taken from Genesis chapter 1, where God says, let there be light, and there was light where God separates the light and the darkness. 
But for John, those images now point to what has happened in Jesus. New life has appeared and light has shone once more and in the resurrection of Jesus. It has not been overcome. On Friday, I went to visit a woman from this church that not all of you will know, though a few of you may know quite well. Jan Babington is one of, one of if not the, longest-serving members of this church. She has seen off at least five rectors, I think. Um, she actually left a few times in frustration, but she's come back. That says, I think, more about us than about her. She hasn't been at church much in person for the last couple of years uh, because problems with her spine have made mobility very difficult and painful. But she has been on, at church online. She, she might be online this evening, although she normally is online in the morning. She's probably annoyed that I'm talking about her if she is, but hello, Jan, if you're listening. I visited her in hospital where she's getting ready for a major operation, which I pray is a success. Her life over the last couple of years has been really, really difficult. A lot of pain. A lot of isolation. But you know, when I saw her, all she could talk about, all she could talk about was how thankful to God she was and how good God's grace was as well as how I needed to have more prayer meetings, which she's been saying to me for about a decade. We read another verse from 1 John together about how in Jesus the life had appeared. And as we read it, she was almost literally glowing. And I found myself longing to be more like her. Some of you might have actually seen a portrait of Jan. Uh, this portrait's painted on the wall down the hill at the, at the corner of Australia Street and Salisbury Road. I think it's beautiful because I think it catches something of the joy that even now still dominates her life because of the new life that God has breathed into her. Now, Jan would be the first to tell me to stop talking about her and that she is just as sinful as anyone else. And I'm sure that's true. But it's also true that she has helped me to see the way the Spirit of God is breathing the new life of Christ into ordinary people like us. She has helped me glimpse the new beginning that God has spoken into being. So I want to finish this series just with an invitation to embrace Jesus Christ, to embrace him and the new beginning that has taken place in him. Embrace it again if you're already a Christian. And if you're not, embrace it by giving thanks that God has rescued us from Adam and Eve's failure, from Cain's envy, from Lamech's viciousness, and from all the sins in which we have gotten tangled up since then. Give thanks for a new path to follow and a new way to learn to walk, a way of humility and love 
forgiveness rather than fear and menace. Some of us here might feel like that path cannot be for us. You might feel like that can't be for me. We are too stuck in our ways. Sin has had us too many times. We're too like Lamech. It's not true, that thought. It is not true. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not overcome it. As surely as God said, let there be light, and there was light, the new life that is in Jesus Christ can flow into and transform your life by the power of the Spirit of God and bring you to glory. Don't take it from me. Hear the Apostle Paul saying the same thing in 2 Corinthians. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of God's glory displayed in the face of Christ. Put your faith in Jesus, friends, and in the new beginning God has made in him. Take hold of it with deep Deep thanksgiving and hope that cannot be extinguished that one day this new beginning will fill heaven and earth with the life of Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, as we come to the end of this series thinking about the beginning, we praise you for the new beginning you have made for the life that has appeared in Jesus Christ and the life broken, entangled in sin and evil. Do a work of power among us, Lord. Make us more like Christ as we turn to him. We thank you for this promise and the hope you give. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to respond by singing, When I survey the wondrous cross by which the Prince of Glory died and conquered sin and turned on a light that will never be put out. Please stand. listening to the Newtown Erskineville Anglican Church podcast. For more audio content and information about our church, please visit neac.com.au.